welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, in the Biodome at the Nakubo 2015 annual meeting, I've got Howard Tybal. Actually, Pete, we're actually moving, I think we're past Venus, (laughs) on our way to Pluto. Coming from New Horizons. The Horizon <laughs> spacecraft. Uh, with Howard, we've got a very, very special guest and dear friend of the show, Senior Vice President for Finance and Treasurer for Rutgers University and Chair of Ikubo, Mike Gower. Mike, welcome back. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be back here. Always great to have you on the show, and I, I love the conversations that uh, that come from your participation. We've got uh, we've got a great uh, conversation ahead here. We're gonna you're gonna be sharing the story of a, a merger uh, and the the aspirations of maintaining your status as a, a top tier university in the face of this current reality, the economic reality that we're dealing with, and the kinds of conversations you all are having in nashville at the annual meeting which is always wonderful before we get started uh listeners please head over to uh, com where you can subscribe to navigating change you can click the link and jump right over to itunes where you can subscribe for free and you can connect with us on twitter and linkedin all those links at tybalink.com uh now this uh conversation i i think Maybe it would be a good idea if we just start, if you could give us the background of this story, Mike, of, of your merger, and, and uh, uh, Howard can, uh, uh, can, can start talking about the, the change initiatives that, are, that you're undertaking as a result. Is that a fair place to start? I think that's quite fair. Um, and, and Howard, uh, please jump in as we're going along, because it's, it's, it's a story that has a lot of, a lot of pieces tied in with it. Um, about two years ago, um, there was a, a merger in New Jersey uh, of the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, which had been around for about 30 years. It was a collection of health-related uh, uh, schools, a uh, centers, uh, a teaching hospital, and infrastructure around that. And that university ceased to exist on July 1st of 2013. And all but one of the academic units uh, were merged into uh, Rutgers University at that time, which transformed Rutgers from uh, being a a substantial public flagship university to being a comprehensive public research university, adding the the medical and health-related components that, that had not been part of it before. Uh, this was done through legislation. It was part of dealing with was what was a financially and, and organizationally challenged University of, of Medicine and Dentistry. Uh, I I would like to say it was, you know, something that was done um, very thoughtfully and carefully planned. But I, I kind of equate it to uh, the legislative equivalent of a uh, shotgun wedding that turned <laughs> out okay, you know. <laughs> So it wasn't exactly that we were uh, we were asked what to do. It was pretty much told what to do. But but it also restructured the university into something of a mini system, which um, changed the dynamics of how it managed, how it was uh, going to uh, affect its mission going forward, and and also transformed the the economic structure. Of the university as a whole, you know. You know so as I listen to Mike, and you know, we'll we'll have available Pete. I know this uh, plan that Mike's going to speak to. 
when I think about this kind of work more and more, uh, you know, we either find ourselves in this gap where we have all the stuff we're doing, but we don't have the context or the strategy, or we have a strategy and our work needs to focus on, all right, how do we embed that concept or that idea into the organization so people understand why we're doing it, which is the strategy, but they also know then what's expected of them. And, you know, the more I do this work, I'm sure the more you do this work, Mike, you discover that it's it's a con it's a daily battle in a, in a good way to be able to say what's the gap right now, what is the thing that is missing that I need to make sure uh, I'm bringing. So is it that my people don't understand why we're doing it, or is it my people don't understand what to do? And my guess is in in especially a merger of the magnitude you're in, it's it's both and it's constant. So I think my question to you is how are you how are you finding uh your ability to manage this and other people manage it? I just think it's it's got to be an overwhelming process. It probably requires a combination of patience. It's gonna take time, but also you gotta keep that urgency going. Yeah, I I agree with that last statement. It it is a careful balance between patience and urgency. Uh, we have a president who is a dynamic individual. In fact, he was brought in to affect this merger uh, because of his background, uh, Robert Barchi. Um, and he continually pushes the envelope because uh, if we get complacent, we, do, we will not finish the job. I mean, the job is never finished, but the, the merger is around how do you create a, a mission-driven institution made up of what, in essence, were two separate pieces before. Uh, how do you align that in such a way that uh, everybody is pushing in generally the same direction? And I think that is something that we have been reasonably successful at thus far, but it is a, a daily challenge because uh, there are a million little details that could derail you. Uh, and you've got to avoid letting the details derail you and, and keep on to the the concepts. Why are we there? You know, yeah. What are we trying to do? It's really mission-based and focusing on what is going to contribute to the mission. You know, Russ, you know, CU Boulder, Russ Moore, spoke with him yesterday on um, on what CU's doing to take their mantra of uh, student success, uh, reputation, and alternative revenue sources, and embed that concept, those three big ideas into the organization. He said, but the challenge is, is that in some ways, we've got the story that we know we want to end up west. And if you think about everybody going west, some are going to land in Seattle, some are going to land in San Francisco. If you ask them, where are you going? We're going west. But it's not clear where all where we're all going to land. Mm-hmm. And he's what he's been observing in the way that they're that they're they're navigating this is they're all moving in the right direction, but making sure that that 
we don't end up in different cities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that to me is the biggest challenge right now in these kinds of big change projects. Well, you know, and that's that gets to one of the central questions that I have too, which is that this, you know, the you are integrating an institution that had their own definition of West before they even came to you. So, you know, how do you get get sort of buy-in on this strategy that your West, the Rutgers West, is the the you know the mm. best West for the integrated new complete institution? Is that was that a complication, or or did it did that all happen as seamlessly and easily as you could possibly have hoped? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Nor is it done. But but there were a couple of things that that helped it along. Um, one was that there was a genuine there was a genuine appreciation on the on the part of the faculty in particular, but also the staff coming in from. Uh, the the other university that it was a better place to be as part of Rutgers. Mm -hmm. You know that that all of us had a better chance of really succeeding, not only surviving but thriving uh, by being uh, one the new Rutgers, one Rutgers, then uh, being separate pieces. So that that itself was a big motivating factor. Um, the other thing that I think really helped was the way that strategic planning took place. Mm. It started with what I would call the umbrella, and that is what are the um, overriding themes, the overriding priorities, the critical elements that go across any of the major operating units. So we have four major operating units at Rutgers now. We have uh, the flagship research university at, in New Brunswick. We have a, a uh, anchor institution uh, university in Newark. We have a liberal arts-oriented uh, university in Camden. And then we have the health sciences division. And for each of those operating units, they took this set of umbrella principles, aspirations, themes, priorities, and foundational elements, and translated them into many strategic plans. Mm. Well, I shouldn't call them many. They were full strategic plans, but they were tied into the umbrella concepts. So here were the overarching themes, here were the overarching major initiatives, and then how do they translate into the four distinct components that were really coming to the, sa to the same mission, but in a different way in a different place? So actually, I got a question for you because I get in front of uh, business officers, I'll get in front of trustees, I'll get in front of faculty, and each one of those bodies has a view of their role in this change. Mm -hmm. And if you ask business officers, those who are making the change happen, they know that they probably are the only ones who can tell the story from the point of view of what does the data tell us, right? So when you think about, and I'm curious about in your role, uh, overseeing it from your vantage point on the cabinet, what do you see as your role in this massive change, especially as you look at the other people that uh, are in uh, other institutions that you have lots of connections in your role as Ikubo president? What is what do you see as your role? And what you know, when you look at them, what do you say? What 
what we should be focusing on more of as the chief business officers. So I do take this uh, work at Rutgers in the context of, of work that I'm involved with at Nakubo, um, where we are uh, in the middle of a, a major initiative to, to try to uh, define, relate to, communicate about what are the evolving economic models in higher education. And there is no one economic model. There are many economic models, depending on whether you're a small liberal arts private college or a, or a public comprehensive or a big AAU Division I uh, land-grant type of place. They're all different types of models. And then within an institution, you have multiple economic models. One of the things that I uh, remind everybody and my staff is that we are addressing management from for different types of businesses, and that mm. if we don't address the differences in what management needs, uh, you know, it's not one size fits all. Because a research enterprise needs something different from a dining service, mm. or from, um, say, the traditional arts and sciences educational process. So I look at it as advice as bringing a couple of things to the table. One is a set of tools, things by which the academic leaders can see what is their economic position and what might be the consequences, or at least how might they evaluate an initiative. Mm -hmm. um, we just came from a session about responsibility-centered management, uh, a, a concept that's been around since 40 the, years at Penn. I was going to say the dawn of time. The dawn of time, right. <laughs> um, yeah, it was interesting to note that the, the, the budget director or the budget vice president at Penn noted that she's been there for 29 years and the model was in place for 11 before her. I mean, it's just <laughs> amazing. amazing to think about that. But how that is translating into what we're doing at, at Rutgers is to really provide a framework of information uh, for the academic leadership, the president, the chancellors, the deans, the directors, such that they can understand the economic impact of decisions that they would make. Yeah. And, but I, I stress that the economic impact is one of the factors that they need to consider. You know, return yeah, on investment exactly. is contribution to mission first. That's right. And and the thing about RCM is, you could I've heard a whole spectrum of reactions uh, to, we would never do RCM here. To we're doing full RCM. To we're making the data available, but we're not going to implement and tie uh, what we give back as funding based on your revenue generation. So there is many different ways institutions deal with RCM. I think the key point here is every school has got to find a way to use data that has integrity that people can look at in a consistent way. One of the stories Kelly and Russ told yesterday was how the administrative departments up to Kelly represented the number of uh, faculty members that were getting two times the merit pool. And then there was the academic rolling up of the data. And when they finally got to it, it were different numbers. 
And it's because they've got different ways of looking at it. They mm -hmm. count things differently. So part of the exercise here for us to really make change happen is that we're looking at the same information and then we're having dialogue on the same information. Well, and that's a, a critical second uh, part of all this, and that is to change the language. Change the language. Um, yeah. A, a common set of definitions, um, and then to align the information systems around those definitions. Yeah. Uh, you know, transparency and accountability is only as good as the quality of the data that you have there and the consistency of the data that you have. Um, one of the things that is both an opportunity and a curse from this uh, merger is that we have to create a, a, a new single set of information systems, mm. um, financial, HR, payroll, students, yeah. uh, research support. But it's allowing us to create a new language for the merged entity. And it isn't, it's certainly not having the units that came into Rutgers adopt what Rutgers already had, because what Rutgers already had in terms of language and data analytics and so on was insufficient probably even before the merger. You know, you know I was going to, I want to step back for a second because the keynote address yesterday was Dan Heath. Mm -hmm. And that was a powerful, I mean, it was, it was entertaining, but he said some powerful things about how we relate to change. Oh, he did. I mean, some of it was just like, you know, setting off light bulbs above my head. When you think about the stories that he told, does anything come to mind for you? Go, you know what? Man, I got to start thinking about him. He talked about I mean, the rider concept versus the elephant. Yeah, so that was powerful. And I took a picture of his graphic because I want to carry that backwards. You know, that um, if you think about change, this is, this is the part that really got to me. If you think about change as being uh, both rational and emotional, mm -hmm. um, that people like me naturally pay attention to the rational. You know, we like the data. We bring out the spreadsheets. That's right. We demonstrate everything, why we should go the way we go. But uh, the elephant that the writer is on represents the emotional context of the change. And that, uh, you know, the, the rational writer may think he's in charge <laughs> in, until the elephant decides that he's not. And then, then, uh, it, it ain't going to go the way the writer thinks it's going to go. Oh, you got to so, you got to give me an example of the, of how that applies to your to your work, Mike. Because I, you know, as an as more of an academic myself, I I have a sense of of my emotional connection to the work. But but how does that apply to you? What are you going to carry back to the university? So it you can only go so far in in bringing out the spreadsheets to somebody to say why they shouldn't do X or Y. You know why why should they not. Uh, buy this this widget from um, you know this company that they've always done it with you know why does it matter that we would uh, centralize purchasing when I, I've gotten everything I wanted when I wanted it you know in the past uh, and he used a good example there um, of a company that um, had a bunch of operating divisions 
And they found in their analysis that they bought 450 different types of work gloves. And amongst those 450 were actually um, some that were the, exactly the same, but for which this company was paying twice as much for one pair as the other. Uh, and he brought out the spreadsheets, or the company brought out the spreadsheets. They showed all the reasons why it was going to um, be so much better to, to consolidate purchasing and save money. But you know, it, didn't, it didn't grab anybody's emotion. It didn't grab anybody's you know, real reason for making a change until he uh, brought examples of those 450 gloves into a conference room and threw them down on the table with the different price, price tags attached. And so that when when his his management team came in and saw those, they actually related, you know, why that was such a stupid idea to be buying 450 different types of things at different prices. And I could relate to that from the standpoint of, you know, you can talk about why this is an inefficient process, or you can talk about why um, this, you know, by um, centralizing travel management, which is something we're going to be doing shortly, is a good idea from a rational data-driven point of view. But if it can't be related back to the individual who wants to get from A to B and always had somebody who took care of them to get from A to B, no matter what the price was or the circumstances, if we can't show that person uh, a good reason to do it emotionally as well as rationally, uh, we, we probably won't succeed. And so that, recognizing the elephant, it's always the elephant in the room, isn't it? It is the elephant in the room. <laughs> recognizing the elephant uh, and, and dealing with those things, I think, is something that you know, really resonated with me and have to apply that. You know, you also talked, Pete, about this idea about data and how easy it is that we can focus on data that really is unimportant. And yes. and that was it was a powerful demonstration of the you know the rational the rider side of us is data 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 data. I mean that you know the, the new mantra in higher ed is this concept of data driven, right? The danger of uh, of being data driven is that we focus on the wrong data, that we don't focus on data that's actually going to move the needle, and the and and as as finance folks, we love data, and we could get it. I mean, he showed this slide that was like you know a hundred fifty PowerPoint slide deck, and that we think that that is the thing that's important. We all know it's not. So I think we got to be really conscious of reminding, and, and the way that I do it in my work, the way that I support others in doing it, is asking a question that pierces that 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 idea of why is this important. Asking the why uncovers whether you, what you're talking about leads to value. So. What was really great about this for finance folks is getting a reminder that, yes, data is important, but you got to figure out what is the right data that you're going to want to use to drive your strategy. Because, man, 
you could end up wasting a lot of time. To me, it's not like there's a right or wrong answer. The, the danger is, is that our speed to execution is going to be compromised because we're going to be so forced to keep figuring out data and interpreting it versus getting to the key metrics or right. just just some key metrics to make decisions and then iterate. I mean, that's the thing that higher ed, Pete, is, is notoriously bad at is trying something, uh, stepping back and saying, did that move us forward, iterating and then trying something different. This is the kind of model I think is now in people's faces. And I think it's our strategy just needs to make sure that happens. We don't fall into the old way of doing strategic planning. Right. Right. And go ahead. Well, um, it, we can get caught up in the data. And, and as you said, there's unimportant data. Uh, there are unimportant data all the time that we come to. And, and this, I think, comes back to um, what is a key thing that we as business offices always have to have top of mind, and that is you know, uh, mission first. Now, the, the mantra, no money, no mission, is very real. Yes. And in the economic model, constraints that we are starting to see, no money, no mission, it has to be top of mind. Yeah. And some institutions more than others, but every institution needs to deal with that. Yeah. If they don't, they're fooling themselves. Mm -hmm. But um, I am not the, the person who should be articulating the critical por portions of the mission. You know, that is really the importance of the academic leadership. So yeah. where do I provide the tools, the context, yes. the advice that those folks can make yeah. good rider and elephant choices? But she was yeah, exactly. That's wonderful. Here's the other thing, Pete, that was fascinating, and I think this does apply to Mike, because I was thinking about his partnership with his chief academic officer at Rutgers. And Kelly and Russ, I don't know if you were there yesterday, Mike, but Kelly and Russ told the story that they are building a new school and they had no faculty. They actually were, they already had students enrolled, like a thousand students enrolled, and they didn't have any faculty. So they said, we're going to now go for the top tier faculty in this area. We have, a, we're going to give offers to eight. And we're going to get three probably back. They got back eight offers, million dollars. They didn't have a million dollars. Now, Russ goes to Kelly and says, this is what it is. They've been working together for three years. Kelly's natural reaction as a finance person is, we don't have that money. Because of the partnership she built with him, she actually stopped herself and said, well, let's, let's, let's figure this out. So I think at the heart of this, I think you're right. It's about you being able to provide data. But I think even more, it's about the partnership that you and your academic side can sit down and have dialogue and brainstorming about how are you going to navigate? Because they're now going to have eight faculty members if they can figure out this increased budget that they're going to need. And Kelly's reaction is not, no, we don't have the money. It's like, all right, let's figure this out together. Yeah, becoming Doctor No is is tantamount to you know uh, destroying the mission yeah. ultimately. But what about partnership versus providing data? See, that's no, the no, thing no. that I'm discovering. Yeah. Providing data uh, is only one element of partnership. Uh, it is it is that advice that strategy. Well, it's how 
how can I figure out a strategic financial way to get to the strategic mission goal? Mm. Um, this is why the economic model project, as an example, at, at Nakubo, but then also uh, what we're doing at Rutgers is important. We get the language right. We get the tools we get the advice, mm-hmm. right? And how do we have that uh, trust with the academic leadership, those who are truly responsible for uh, fulfilling the mission? How do we contribute what they need to get from A to B? Yeah, I think Kelly's example is, is a great one there. Uh, you know, Having the eight great faculty is also a wonderful opportunity. It is a marvelous opportunity to do more than maybe they thought they could exactly. off the top. So to enable that, to advise that, to figure out the way to do it, will in the long run likely get them to the mission goals faster or better. Uh, so uh, opportunity, it's, it's like the merger. It was an opportunity that was thrust upon the university. And yet, within the context of education, research, and what is evolving as part of you know, healthcare and contribution to the, the population of, of New Jersey, uh, oh my gosh, it is the right thing to do you know, many, many, many times over. That's such a wonderful way to look at it, too, Mike, because you are taking this opportunity and becoming a custodian of that opportunity in the spirit of the community that you serve. Yeah, and, and I think that's my, my job. Uh, if I don't do that, I'm not doing my job. Um, you know, I, I have to partner with the president and the chancellors and the deans. And, you know, again, don't become Dr. No. It's how do you get to yes, but how do you get to yes in a, in a safe and sustainable way? Beautiful. Uh, I think that's, that's my part of the job. Their part that. is... is getting then the mission done you know what pete that's it right there how do you get the gas in a in a safe and sustainable way i think that is a wonderful message and i would be uh, remiss having both of you guys uh, together at nakubo if i didn't ask one final favorite event that you have taken on besides uh obviously howard's presentations uh what's what's the real highlight from nakubo uh, annual meeting 2015 the big lesson learned for each of you but as we uh, as we leave i'll tell you you know get us started on you know finding our rooms or finding our sessions that's all <laughs> <laughs> we are living we are living in the future this is what the, this is what it's going to be like living a thousand years from now i'm telling you <laughs> You know, experiences. So, what's the big lesson? The big lesson. Uh, I'll go. I'll, I'll jump on that. The big lesson I always get out of Nakubo or Ikubo is that uh, I have here probably 1,700 colleagues, uh, all of whom have had uh, good, bad, and ugly experiences with one thing or another in, in, in higher education as it's been developing, and we share. You know, we share the good, the bad, the ugly, and it's all about, it's not about competition, it's all about collaboration, it's all about yeah. passing those best ideas, and and these are people who become friends and colleagues over time, you look forward to seeing them the next time because you know you can have another both uh, 
intellectually and emotionally stimulating, you know, the, the rider and the elephant again, yes. intellectually and emotionally right. uh, satisfying conversation uh, with these folks. So that that's my big takeaway from uh, being here at Nakubo. And, and for me, it's the recognition and reminder that coming together like this, which is like a, a significant step back from the mechanics and the day-to-day overwhelm of the work that Mike and others are living through is probably the best way to rejuvenate yourself oh, yeah. and to connect with ideas that you just can't give yourself permission to go to. You know, when I run, and I know when you run, I can sort of step back from the you know, and that's why I exercise partly because I can sort of like, okay, decompress and it's good, you know, it's got all this kind of benefit. But coming to a conference like this for four days allows you to see things you never would have seen. And I think this is an example. And, and you can see it in people's expressions. I mean, they really, and it's not just the sessions, it is more even the connections between people, uh, both in the sessions and in the networking. And the libations don't hurt. No, they don't. But that is that is truly the value, and that's why I've I've been so tied in with the Akubos over the years. Yeah, Ikubo and Nakubo, um, because uh, that that's the way that we really do help each other. Oh. You know, advance what is this so important mission of higher education? Absolutely. You know, to, to you know, that's where we get into the lofty goals of you know contribution to state, country, and world. But it's true. Yeah. It's true. It is true. So I I would also like to add, speaking of contributing to that higher mission, that there was a tweet uh, from somebody in your session yesterday, Howard, saying that you officially were handing out beer to the audience. And that, oh, my God. I saw that, that Twitter. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> it came from Colorado. It came out. Russ Moore packed it in his bag. And brought it all the way from Colorado, and I and I pulled it out, and I, you know, people looked at me, you know, a little bit sideways, except for those who had done it before. <laughs> yeah, those who've done it before. There was said, one. Okay, it's not wine this time. There was beer. one guy that is like is way <laughs> off in the corner, and I was pouring a little bit. You know, he's like, "Fill my glass." <laughs> like, you know, for so king and country, time. Howard, king and country, king and country. Uh, this has been a great conversation, as expected. Thank you both uh, for for taking the time out of your busy conference. Day to sit down and have this conversation. Senior Vice President for Finance and Treasurer at Rutgers and Ikubo Chair uh, for this year uh, on his way out, right? This is it. In October, but not counting the days. No, you know Ticking what? clock. I, I actually think if they said, you know, Mike, you want to do a couple more years? Yeah, no, no, I know. I've still got two more years on the Nakubo board. Actually, I got things to do. To that point, that's true. To that point, you got a great uh, person coming up uh, right behind you. And we're going to be doing a podcast with her. In preparation, uh, Lynn Schaefer. So it's going to be fantastic. She's amazing. She is amazing. Uh, Mike Gower, thank you so much for your time today. It's great to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Howard Teibel, I'll let you get back to it. Thank you for uh, taking the time. I got to go look at the map now and figure out. I've been here for four (laughs) days. You have no idea, Pete. You have no idea. It's, but it's, uh, you'll see the picture. We're going to post a picture of what this looks like um, on, on the website. And, and this is ju- that was a picture of just one of the environments here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there are multiples. That's right. Excellent. That's right. Excellent. So live from the Horizon spacecraft, now shooting off into the, uh, into the great unknown, uh, this has been Navigating Change.